Well, this is uh, part two of a two-part finale of a series that we've been doing, grounded in 1 Samuel 15, the first lesson of which we entitled, Worship God Rejects. And now we are engaged in these final two lessons in the Worship God Accepts. Now, I, I must confess that I'm so delighted and so um, joyous to to convey this message to you. Uh, it's both very sobering and very glorious to convey to you anytime the wholeness of the gospel. It is the means by which God has ordained in his Son that we are transformed, not only saved from the penalty of sin, but from the pollution of sin. And for me, as a pastoral counselor, this this other element of being saved from the pollution of sin is so important, so essential, and there's so little attention paid to it these days that um, it grieves me to have to um, meet with people during the week who have been Christians sometimes for decades and have yet to come to the fullness of the gospel. And consequently, they are suffering from typically one of two things, and that is they are suffering from the inability, the seemingly inability, to form and maintain uh, healthy, loving relationships, to form a meaningful bond with other people, including in their marriage, in their relationship with their children and their extended family, not to mention those within the church. And they're suffering from some form of addiction. One or, or the both of those are at work in their life. And they have been Christians sometimes for decades, and they can't understand why they are still so miserable, why it is that they are so very unhappy. And, and of course, we have to begin at that point to unravel the theological implications of that unhappiness. And invariably, invariably, we come down to the point where they have a, a very truncated, reductionist view of God's purposes in Jesus Christ. They have some very minimal understanding of the gospel. In fact, I would go so far as to say that most of these people are living out some kind of pseudo-understanding of the gospel, some pseudo-gospel. Even, I would go so far as to say, another gospel, which, of course, leads only to destruction. So the fact that they're having such, experiencing such unhappiness, and they're having such difficulty in their relationships, and they're struggling with some form or, or more of addiction, is only understandable. It's a consequence Someone once said that a good analyst will tell you, a good computer analyst will tell you, that your system, is, what you're getting is exactly what your system designed to produce. Your system is producing exactly what your system is designed to produce. And you can't get anything else out of it. And so a pseudo-gospel will produce unhappiness, destruction. It will not produce righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So I'm very motivated and very exercised 
in my spirit to communicate in this series to you the overview of why that is the case. And when you're engaging in a worship that God rejects, grounded in some kind of a a pseudo-obedience to a pseudo-gospel, you're not going to be a functional Christian. You're not going to know righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You're going to know trauma, codependence, addiction. And that addiction will include religious addiction. We already did one episode in this series on traditionalism and addiction. And they are totally related. So this is a very important conclusion of this series for you. I, I hope that you have stuck with me. Remember, the first lesson was entitled, Worship God Rejects. And there have been several lessons in since then. And so this is, uh, the last lesson was entitled, Worship God Accepts. And I must admit, I realize that I did most of that lesson <laughs> as a review of the previous lessons. And so we didn't get into the fullness of what the worship God accepts as I intended but I, I don't want to apologize too much because th- this is so important to you. And it, it, taking it slow and taking it simple. Because when you become so unacquainted, unacquainted so unfamiliar to the uh, word of righteousness, that we have become dull of hearing, as he says in Hebrews 5.11, in fact, let me just read that to you real quick. Hebrews 5.11, the author is really concerned about his readers because he wants to share with them about the glories and the wonders of the all-sufficiency and the sacrifice of Jesus as our high priest as well as his continued mediation in our life before the Father. And he wants to talk about the high priesthood according to Melchizedek, as being in contrast to the Levitical priesthood and the weakness and uselessness of that system. And he wants to explain these things to them so that they will uh, mature and come into the fullness of their understanding of the gospel. But then he says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. The NIV translates that, since you do not even try to listen anymore. Now, that's a very dangerous place to live spiritually. He says, go on verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, the elementary principles of the Christian faith. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk, and that is, I would, I would say, the majority of American Christians, is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. You can also translate that, is not acquainted with the word of righteousness. Listen, it's been my experience that most Christians do not understand which covenant they're living under, which is one of the most basic elementary truths of the Christian faith. And that's because the dominant 
theological systems within evangelicalism either distort, minimize, or altogether reject the role of the new covenant in the believer's life. It's another religion. It's a it's a, it's the same group that have put together these man-made theological systems. Same spirit that had entered Galatia, whom Paul contended with, entered Corinth, whom Paul contended with. They represent themselves as being part of the Jesus community. But they have a different agenda. An agenda that's not God's agenda. Just like Saul, in 1 Samuel 15, heard the clear word of God and then chose to modify it to accommodate his own interests and the interests of the people. And so he did not obey the voice of the Lord, but instead offered some kind of pseudo-obedience and then tried to mask it with some kind of alternative worship. That's exactly what's happened today, and I have striven, I have strived, striven, (laughs) I have strived to help you understand that, help you connect the dots between the rebellion of Saul and the rebellion at work within contemporary Christianity, especially from the pulpit, especially in the theology, or the lack thereof, that's being taught in our churches. Most Christians are untaught, uncared for, and treated like a means to some preacher's end. They're neglected, they're abused, they're abandoned, and addicted. Addicted to that religious tradition. And so they become dull of hearing to the things that I want to talk with you about in this conclusion. And I certainly hope that's not you. If you're a pastor or an elder, I certainly hope that you are considering what I'm saying because it's very serious stuff. Well, let's look at um, just a review, finish our review. I finished uh, the first episode in this two-part finale in this series uh, at at Hebrews chapter 8, where we read in verse 1, Now the main point, and what is being said in this, is this. We have such a high priest. That's the first thing. We have such a high priest. What kind of high priest? One who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. That's so important to understand. The Levitical priesthood, the high priest within that Levitical system, his work was never done. Every year he went into the Holy of Holies with blood not of his own and offered for the sins of the people. But there were no chairs, there was no place to sit within the Holy of Holies because he could not sit because his work was not done. And so throughout the year he went into the Holy Place, which is outside of the Holy of Holies, and he would continue to offer sacrifices throughout the year, then once a year into the Holy of Holies. That work was continuous, ongoing, never-ending. 
the blood would flow outside the temple like a river, indicating the number of sacrifices that were occurring on behalf of the people, which could never cleanse the conscience, which could never transform the heart. But they were a pointer, they were a shadow, pointing to the ultimate temple, which is Jesus' body itself, himself, and the ultimate sacrifice, which was the cross. So Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. As our high priest, his atoning work having been accomplished. Very important word. So the accomplishment of his atoning work, his all-sufficient atoning work, is now being experienced in this present age by those who belong to him, who are not any longer part of this present age, but part of the new creation that began with his resurrection. In union with Christ, they are experiencing in this present time, in this moment, as evidenced by the coming of the Spirit, the future age has invaded the present. The new creation has already begun. And the new covenant era has been inaugurated. Again, as evidenced by the presence of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit. And it's that word to which you are called to be singularly devoted, undivided devotion to that word. So, now the main point and what is being said in the letter to the Hebrews is this. We have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the holy places and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Which the Lord pitched, not man. So what I want to do in this conclusion is to help you understand as clearly as possible, as simply as possible, how we must connect the dots between the pseudo-obedience of Saul and obedience in a worship that was utterly rejected by God, including Saul as king. Him as a leader was utterly rejected. And how that this has been a cons consistent problem throughout redemptive history, throughout the history of Israel, and throughout church history. This propensity to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and modify it, just as Saul did his commission, and to modify the gospel to accommodate the human agenda and human religious tradition. And what I've been saying to you that's so sobering is that God utterly rejects that. Even as, by all appearances, things just go on as they've always gone on. They're just happening. Just like in the days of Noah. Things are just, life is just going on. 
Churches are meeting every Sunday. They're exercising this pseudo-obedience. They're acting out in this uh, alternative worship to that which God prescribes in his Son. And you would never know it, that anything is wrong. Except that they're in a state before God that's described as rejected. Listen, in Matthew 7, we are familiar with the story, the narrative, when Jesus closes his Sermon on the Mount, where there are going to be people just like Saul who protest when Jesus said, Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. And they will protest, saying, Lord, Lord, did, did we not do this? Did we not do this? Did we not do this other thing? Just as Saul did. You remember Saul in 1 Samuel 15, he protested to Samuel. I did obey the Lord. I did obey the voice of the Lord. But Samuel was not having any of it. And there will be those in the future, too, who protest to the Lord Jesus himself, saying, well, Lord, Lord, we did do this, and we did do that, and we did do this. We did all these things. And Jesus will respond to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. So what I want for you is to be awake. I want you to sharpen your discernment. And I want for you to be able to come out of this pseudo-obedience and this alternative form of worship that's at work within the churches today and avoid being numbered among those whom Jesus says quite clearly, I never knew you. I mean, those, those are some of the most sobering words in all of the New Testament. And it doesn't say that this might happen. It says it will happen. Let's just read that text. Matthew 7. And we, want, we desperately need and want to be on the right side of that. Many will say to me on that day, Matthew 7, 21. Let's begin there. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. See, this is the essence of what I'm desperately trying to convey to you. Is that the problem is not between secular uh, heathenism and believers. The dichotomy that the Bible presents is always between those who profess to be believers and are not, and those who are. The great deception is not socialism or liberalism or, or communism or even capitalism in its many forms. The great deception is not, is not the atheism of science and, and humanism, all the isms. The great deception, that's just what a fallen world does. The great deception is that there's a form of religion in the world that's passing itself off as Christianity, which simply is not. 
and masses of humanity are falling into it. And they will cry out in that day, Lord, Lord. But Jesus says clearly, doesn't he? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name do many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, let me be clear. The obedience to which God calls us is the obedience to his exclusive and final and unique word in his son as our only high priest. And we must have a singular devotion, unwavering obedience to that word. Please let that settle in. Please take a deep breath. Take a moment of quiet and let that settle in. Everything I've said up until this point in this series leads to that final statement there. Last statement. What we have discovered in 1 Samuel 15 is that God does not accept almost obedient. God does not accept mostly obedient. God does not accept our innovations our inventions, our modification of the Word of God in order to accommodate our human traditions. That is one of the greatest deceptions at work in the churches today, is that there are many forms of Christianity. There are many versions of the Gospel. And that you can just kind of pick and choose you can go from church to church, denomination to denomination, and, and kind of try them all out and make a, a graph and a list of which ones work best for you. Do we want traditional worship or do we want contemporary worship? Do we want solid exposition of scripture or do we want entertaining self-help messages? What, what is it we want? Do we want fun and games for all the kids? Or do we want solid fellowship? What, what, what do we want in a church? I mean, goodness, back when I was in Bible college, we were taught to follow Bill Hybels and go knocking on people's doors and asking them if they went to church. And if they didn't, we were trained to ask them, well, what would it take for you to come to church? And then when these unbelievers, these unchurched, quote-unquote, people, would give us answers to our survey, we were required to come back to the classroom and design a church structure that would be attractive to unbelievers. 
And it was working really well for Bill Hybels at Willow Creek, and they were creating a product that was bringing in all these unchurched people. You see what I'm saying? We really believe that we have the prerogative to modify and change the clear word of God in order to accommodate our agenda. But there aren't many versions of the gospel. There aren't many uh, approaches to truth. There's only one Lord. Paul says it clearly in Ephesians chapter 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling which you have been called. That's what I'm doing today. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I know many people are just distressed about the divisions within the body of Christ, but there aren't any. There's only one unity, and that's the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The only divisions, and please hear me now clearly, the only divisions that exist within the body of Christ are between those who have taken it upon themselves to modify the Word of God, to twist it, to distort it, to minimize it, to do as they will with it in order to accommodate their agenda and their own traditions. And there's a whole crowd of those who have done that, and they're all divided amongst each other. They're all at war with each other. And it stands in complete contrast to the unity of the Spirit that has never ceased to be. So we must be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Listen, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in the hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's the New Testament response to denominationalism and the division between those who believe. I mean, it's. I hope you feel the grief that I'm trying to share with you. I hope you sense the urgency I'm conveying to you. I hope you share it, in fact. Listen, there's a reason why the average Christian is so miserable. It's because they're not getting the gospel. It's not because they've gotten the gospel and the gospel has failed them. It's because they're not getting the gospel. And I, for one, am extremely exercised by that. I'm extremely jealous for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its transforming power in the lives of those who receive it by faith alone. So we are not one who wants to walk in some pseudo-obedience, as Saul did, but rather in the obedient footsteps of Jesus Christ. Listen, the pseudo-obedience of Saul, as so clearly set forth in 1 Samuel 15, is typical. It is the default of the unbelieving, professing Christian. That's right, the unbelieving, professing Christian. Those who make an open profession but deny him by their works. Those who have a form of godliness 
but deny the power thereof. We are living in the last days. We're living in the last of the last days. And Paul tells us in 2 Timothy quite clearly what the church of the last days is going to look like. Let me just read that to you. This is what the church, the character, listen now carefully. This is what the church character, the average character of the churches is going to look like. If you don't believe me, you can look at Julie Roy's and her report that comes out daily. You can look at other um, church monitoring, church investigatory uh, services that are available, including the the, uh, Christianity Today sometimes will report on these things. The overwhelming amount of of, uh, scandal and moral failure and financial misconduct that is going on within the churches today. And it's in keeping with what Paul says here, but know this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness without love for good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of religion, having denied its power, keep away from such men as these. Feel that. Let that settle in. He simply just defined the average evangelical church today. Looks good. Sounds good. But it's not. So, let me shift gears here and remind you then that the dots that we are connecting here in this conclusion is between the pseudo-obedience of Saul and the pseudo-obedience that is so prevalent in the contemporary church today. And how we must identify that and be done with it. To avoid it. Mark and avoid it. And part two is now is about what then is it that we are to be devoted to? What is What is it that God has called us to the singular obedience which serves as the fount out from which all other obedience, Christian obedience flows. And that is to this word that I just read you in Hebrews chapter 8. The author to the Hebrews is offering us his central point. And this central point in Hebrews 8, 1 and 2 is encompassed on both sides. Seven chapters before it and the balance of the chapters after it are filled with the most severe of warnings, beloved. No single letter in the New Testament carries as many warnings as do 
does the letter to the Hebrews. And we must heed those warnings. And they all have to do with warnings that we will become dull of hearing, that we will neglect so great a salvation, that we will drift away. And now I am not suggesting that we will drift away into some kind of paganized, full backslid position. Some will, of course. Or that we'll return to uh, open sin and moral decadence. That we'll reject the faith altogether. That is a concern, but that's not the overriding concern. The overriding concern is that we will drift away into some form of pseudo-religion that God rejects. So this is a call and a reminder that the Christian life is something that we have to be attentive to. We have to pay much closer attention. We can't rest on our laurels. For while we rest in the accomplished work of Christ as far as the means of salvation, we must pay much closer attention to working that out in our life as we learn to walk by the Spirit. We must not return to law. We must not return to other mediators. We must not return to other priests. We must not return to following celebrity preachers or or obeying some kind of elevated clergy within their uh, tradition. No, no, no. We must recognize that we have such a high priest. What kind of high priest? Well, he tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, leading up to our main point here. Let me read that to you now. Beginning with verse 23 of chapter 7. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. He's speaking, of course, of the Levitical priesthood, a priesthood that since the 2nd and 3rd century of church history has been, as men have consistently sought to reinstate and then lord over you and set themselves up as the sole distributors of God's grace to you. It's a lie, it's a deviation from the truth, and it is something that God has judged and will one day ultimately judge. So the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever to the uttermost, completely, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you realize that? Do you understand that glorious truth? 
He is able to save completely. Jesus did not come to help you save yourself. Jesus did not come to make salvation merely possible. Jesus came to save you and to save you completely. Therefore, he is able. How? Why is he able? Because his priesthood is permanent. He is able to save completely. What does he mean there except that there is an incomplete salvation? There is those who have heard, but what they heard was not mixed with faith. And so they've failed to go on. They've failed to grow. They've failed to mature. They may still be going to church. They may still be doing all the church activities. They may be a part of your small group. They've heard the gospel, but it hasn't been mixed with faith. They're unregenerate churchgoers. And they're all around you. If you are in any form of evangelical church today, you are surrounded by churchgoers who have heard the gospel, but it has yet to be mixed with faith. They're incomplete. Because they're not, a, they're not embracing the full gospel. They're embracing some kind of pseudo-gospel, which is unable to save. But our gospel and the, that which we are called to a complete and undivided devotion is that he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him and through him alone. Listen, if you're depending on a priest, if you're depending on a celebrity preacher, if you're depending on your church, if you're depending on your denomination, if you're depending on confessions and creeds, if you're depending on all these other things to uh, be the means by which you draw near to God, you're missing the point. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him. Singular. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you realize that? Isn't that wonderful? God has appointed his son as your single mediator, your single intercessor. And he ever lives to make intercession for you. He's making an intercession for you even right this moment. Else you could not remain a Christian for the next 10 seconds. In your own strength, you would fall away like that. No, he's making intercession for you. I know it may be easy to think, well, hey, I know he's making intercession for my pastor and for the elders and some of the elderly old blessed saints in the church, but how can he be making intercession for me? I, I know my weaknesses, I know my faults, I know my, my, my sins. No, he's making intercession for you. And you can begin to reframe your life under that awareness. And begin to walk in that which is the greater reality. And that is his once for all sacrifice has already made you perfect before the Father. You're never going to be more accepted before the Father than you are at this moment. 
There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can participate in that's going to make you more acceptable to the Father than does the all-sufficient blood of Christ in the new covenant. That's why it's so important that we be singularly devoted, perfectly obedient to that word. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests who offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all. You hear the repetitious theme there? Once for all, forever, completely, permanent, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, there is the contrast, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the main point and what is being said in this is this. We have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the holy places and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Let me conclude with this. The worship that God accepts doesn't require a holy place, a sacred building, a basilica, a cathedral, a consecrated, hallowed space. There are no holy places on earth. There are no places to which we must go in order to worship properly. Jesus is our own singular minister in the holy places and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Don't let anyone tell you that if you don't attend church on Sunday morning this week that you're going to miss out on worship or that you won't be able to worship properly. Listen, you can worship individually, but it's always better to worship in a group of brothers and sisters. So, you know, you can gather eight or ten people in your living room and worship on Sunday morning and be in a state of worship and be the body of Christ and be the temple of the living God no less than any mega church down the street with 3,000 people attending. In fact, you're probably more so. There are no holy places. There are no more tabernacles. I come from a tradition where everything was tabernacle. <laughs> Faith tabernacle. Because the Lord has pitched... Not man. You, you know that in the first century, it was uh, early days, very early days of the church. Uh, the pagans and the Jews didn't regard Christianity as a true religion because it didn't have an altar. We didn't have a building. And they didn't see any priest. Both paganism and Judaism had out both. They had their temples. They had their altar, sacrificing altar. And they had their sacrificing priest. And the Christi Christians appeared to have n none of those. 
So they couldn't obviously be a true religion. The irony in the pair of that is so thick. Because the fact is, what the book of Hebrews tells us is that we are the only ones with a true tabernacle. We are the only ones with a true altar. And we are the only ones with a genuine high priest. They are the ones who have the shadows. They are the ones who have the uh, temples pitched by men. Useless, weak, unable to save. But we have the high priest who saves completely. Well, I hope I have made my point. I have striven. It's been, frankly, I'll tell you this much, if I may, it's been a, a real concern for me. It's been a burden for me because I know the gravity of what I'm saying here, and it's been a burden for me to articulate this in my weakness. We do have this treasure in jars of clay. But I beg you to consider what I've been saying in this series, and I beg you to listen to this final lesson more than once until you grasp what I'm saying. We have such a high priest. And the singular, undivided devotion and obedience to that reality, that truth, that we have a high priest who has entered into the heavens who is by his one, once-for-all, perfect sacrifice, accomplished our salvation, and now ever lives to make intercession for us. We must be wholly obedient to that word from God. He will not accept almost obedient. He will not accept mostly obedient. He will only accept absolute, undivided devotion. And that is something that comes to us by grace through faith. It is by faith that we enter into the full benefits of the high priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not something you have to work up. It's not something you have to go uh, try to list number of ways that you can do this. You simply have to listen and to hear and act in faith. And let me close with the wonderful benediction that is offered in Hebrews chapter 13, beginning with verse 20. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus, equip you in every good thing to do his will, by doing in us what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.